Our scripture reading this morning will be from Matthew chapter 3, if you have your Bible. If you have one from the back, it's on page 808. We'll be reading from several different places in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, 5 and 6, and 13 through 17. Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verses 5 and 6. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And then in verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Amen. Well, for those of you who are guests, I'm Mark. Welcome to our church. Um, We are making our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And if you're sort of new to the Bible and not familiar with it. The Gospels are those four accounts at the beginning of the New Testament that tell the narrative story of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. And we are just starting that. We've been two chapters in. We're taking it a chapter at a time, and we come to chapter three this morning in the Gospel of Matthew. Just a quick review of where we've been. You remember in Matthew chapter one, it begins with a genealogy of Joseph, the son of David, And we saw that Jesus, the point of Matthew chapter 1 is to prove that Jesus is the true son of David who can now bring in God's kingdom. And he's he's attached to the Davidic line by birth through Mary and through his adoptive father, Joseph. There is no little amount of difficulty and trouble accompanying the birth of the Son of God. As Pastor Jonathan preached to us last week, there's a lot of turmoil going on. There are wise men who come to visit him and worship him and bring him gifts, but there's also Herod who's out to kill him. And we end that chapter with Herod being killed himself, God protecting his Christ, his son. And now we come up 30 years later in the story, between the end of Matthew chapter 2 and the beginning of Matthew chapter 3, and this man named John who's baptizing in the wilderness, in the Jordan, and calling people to repent. So what's going on in Matthew chapter 3? Matthew chapter 3 is the preparation, the final preparation for Jesus before he begins his ministry. And some of that preparation even bleeds into chapter 4, which we're going to see next week. But this is the preparation of Jesus, and it's the proclamation of God the Father about Jesus. So we are getting what John the Baptist says, about Christ, what God the Father says about Christ, and God, and God the Spirit as well. And then we transition next week into chapter 4, and we'll see him being tempted in the wilderness as also as part of his preparation before he begins his ministry, calls his disciples, and starts teaching and healing. So this is, in this chapter right here, the final preparation, so to speak, beginning for the coming kingdom of Jesus. Now, I'm going to attack this chapter um, in a slightly different way. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not so much going to talk about John the Baptist's preparation, although that's going to be there, and, and I'm going to talk about what the Father and the Spirit do at Jesus' baptism. I'm going to say all that. I'm not going to necessarily go straight verse by verse through the chapter, but what I tried to do in my study this week in preparation for this sermon is try to really isolate what is going on here. What is the main thing that's happening in Matthew chapter 3 that God wants to teach us? And I think one of the main things that's going on in Matthew chapter 3, if not the main thing, is how to get right with God. How to get right with God. 
That's what's happening. That's what John's doing. He's preparing people for the king, for Jesus to come. And he's telling them how to get right with God. And so that's where I want us to go this morning. So if you, I mean, statistically speaking, there are those of you in this room who are not right with God. I mean, if you just take a crowd this big, you, you perhaps have come in maybe assuming you're right with God, maybe assuming that between you and God, things are just a-okay and they're all roses and butterflies. But that's not, that may not be the case. For, those, for some of you, you're, you're, you're absolutely convinced that, that, you are, that you're right with God, that, that, and that's great. But we want to make sure that we get that, from, that idea from Scripture, right? We want to make sure that our experience is biblical experience, that what God says makes a person right with him is what we have experienced and what we are banking on to make us right with God. So that's, what we're gonna go, that's where we're going to go this morning. And I've got three steps here, three steps to getting right with God. All right, here's the first step. You have to sense your need. You got to sense your need. All right, we see that in these people who are coming to John to be baptized by him, right? We see it in verses five and six in Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. This is what John was telling them to do. They sensed the need for it and they went out and did it. Now there are all kinds of reasons that people see their need for Jesus. I mean, they can, they can see their need for Jesus to rescue them from a bad relationship or bad decisions that they have made or to make their life a little bit better or to bring them wealth and success or to give them a certain social standing or because of family pressure or a cultural expectation. All those are not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but if they're the ultimate reason that a person senses their need for Jesus, they're not a biblical reason. They're not the reason that John gives for why we should sense our need for Jesus. So what is the reason in Matthew chapter three that people should sense their need for Jesus? Here's why. We'll read a couple texts here in just a second. Let's read verse chapter, let's just dive right into the text and be thinking about what is the need that people feel for Jesus from these passages. Look at verse seven. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 10, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Fire, judgment, wrath. That shouldn't be new to us. We've already seen in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, why Jesus is coming. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. Now, the idea here is that Jesus is coming, and the reason we need to sense our need for Jesus is because the judgment and wrath of God against our sin is real. That's the reason we should sense a need for Jesus. And this is not just confined to Matthew chapter 3. This is all over the Bible. John chapter 3 verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So the whole idea of believing in the Son is to get us out from underneath the wrath of God and to place us in a place of eternal life, not in a place of eternal judgment. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is crystal clear that the thing that we most need to sense our need of is deliverance from God's righteous wrath against our sin. God's righteous, holy judgment against us for our sin. That is the need that's driving these people to John and what should drive us to Jesus. Now, to say that the wrath of God is widely denied today is it's not saying anything new. I mean, we live in a modern culture, right? I mean, this fire, brimstone, judgment, wrath, I mean, this is so primitive. It just proves that the Bible is just an antiquated document. Did you know people in the 300s were struggling with questions like this? Let me give you an example. A Christian book in the year 313, if you think this is a modern problem, a Christian book in the year 313 or 314 begins by recording the opposition of Greek philosophers who were Stoics and Epicureans to the idea that God is righteously wrathful. Listen to what the translation from the Greek says. Many persons hold this opinion, which some philosophers also have maintained, that God is not subject to anger since the divine nature is either altogether beneficent, that is benevolent, kind, and that it is inconsistent with his surpassing and excellent power to do injury to anyone. You see, in the 300s, they're wrestling with the idea of God, a God who is wrathful toward us. What? God's kind. God is love. God would never hurt anybody or wish or bring judgment upon anyone. And I would argue that one of the reasons this is widely denied in our day is because it's just misunderstood. The idea of God's wrath is misunderstood. We must be aware of understanding God's wrath in terms of human anger. Here's, what John, here's the way John Stott puts it. He says, God's wrath against sin does not mean that he's likely to fly off the handle at the most trivial provocation, still less that he loses his temper for no apparent reason at all. For there's nothing capricious or arbitrary about the holy God. Nor is he ever malicious, spiteful, or vindictive. His anger is neither mysterious nor irrational. It is never unpredictable, but always predictable because it's provoked by evil and by evil alone. See, that's where we have to understand that our definition of God's wrath matters. We don't need to think of it in the way that human anger functions, which is often flying off the handle at trivial provocations, just zapping somebody dead, or being capricious or arbitrary or malicious or spiteful or vindictive. God's wrath is none of those things. Rather, God's wrath is his settled opposition and commitment to punish all evil and those who commit it. That is God's wrath. But for those who do not understand it properly, that is, as God's righteous and holy response to evil and sin, then it gets denied. And it gets denied in our current context, in our current modern age, for several reasons. See, there's not any room in a world come of age, like we see ourselves to be as a, broad, as a broad American culture, God's purpose in a world come of age is to serve humanity. A genuine God-centered view of God is intolerable. And so it follows from this that God wishes to be, if, if, God, if God, quote unquote, wishes to be accepted today, then he must be a tolerant God who respects human rights. But that's inc incredibly arrogant for us as Westerners to think this way. It's incredibly arrogant. Why do I say that? Well, Tim Keller in his book, Reason for God, talks about an incident after a service where he preached on the wrath of God and received this response from someone who was visiting. He writes, in one of my after-service discussions, a woman told me that the very idea of a judging God was offensive. I said, why aren't you offended by the idea of a forgiving God? She looked puzzled. I continued, I respectfully urge you to consider your cultural location when you find the Christian teaching about hell offensive. I went on to point out that secular Westerners get upset by the Christian doctrines of hell, but they find biblical teaching about turning the other cheek and forgiving enemies appealing. I then asked her to consider how someone from a very different culture sees Christianity. In traditional societies, the teaching about turning the other cheek makes absolutely no sense. It offends people's deepest instincts about what is right. For them, the doctrine of a God of judgment, however, is no problem at all. 
That society is repulsed by aspects of Christianity that Western people enjoy and are attracted by the aspects that secular Westerners can't stand. Why, I concluded, should Western cultural sensibilities be the final court in which to judge whether Christianity is valid? I asked the woman gently whether she thought her cultural superior to non-Western, whether she thought her culture superior to non-Western ones. She immediately answered no. Well then, I asked, why should your cultural objections to Christianity trump theirs? See, the point is, and the point that I'm trying to make is that is, is what's answered by Gavin Ortland in a recent article I read called Three Ways Our Culture is Different from Every Other Culture in History, which I'm, the title's provocative, and after reading the article, I'm not sure if our culture is all that different from other cultures in history. But anyway, he, he writes a good point when he says, quote, in earlier centuries, the main problem that people often wrestled with was God's mercy. They assumed, they assumed God's justice. The main question was how can a just and righteous God pass over sins and spare the undeserving and at the same time maintain his justice? Today we have the opposite problem. God's mercy is assumed and God's justice must be explained. The problem is not how can God be merciful, but how could a good and loving God ever judge people? See, the question is flipped. C.S. Lewis capture, captures this distinction very well. When he says the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. Man is the judge, God is in the dock. End quote. Now, what is the reason for this shift? What's the reason that when we talk about, like, if, if I was to say something like, why is, in other words, why is God's mercy not a problem for us? Why is the fact that God forgives sin doesn't, doesn't throw up in our minds, well, calling God's justice into question? Isn't God holy? Isn't God just? Why do we assume that rather than the idea that God is love or assume that God is not just? Well, John Piper, I think, helpfully gets at this, and I'm not going to read the quote, but I just want to summarize what he says. It's because we're starting from totally different mindsets when we approach the Bible. See, if we approach the Bible with the starting point of man is central, man is right, man is fundamental, we'll read the Bible in a completely different way than if we approach the Bible as God is central God is working out a purpose. God is glorious. God is worthy. Man is creature. So it, it, it really matters the way in which we start and the way our starting point works itself out. So one of the reasons it's hard to communicate today biblical reality to modern people is that the biblical mindset and the secular mindset start from such radically different places. And so the secular mindset begins with man and as the basic given reality in the universe and then it moves out from that and interprets the world with man and his rights and needs as the measure of all things and at the center of all things. What the secular mindset sees as problems are seen as problems because of how it fits or doesn't fit with man and his rights and needs and expectations. But the biblical mindset begins from a radically different starting point, namely God, that God is the basic given reality in the universe. And then the biblical mind moves out from this center and interprets the world. But because we start from such different starting points, we hear things in radically different ways. But I would argue that, to wrap up this point, that the ultimate reason that the wrath of God is denied or questioned or God is placed in the dock for it, is largely because the rights of man are exalted and the glory of God is decentralized. It's a fundamental problem with our view of God and our view of man. Here's what John Stott says in another fantastic quote. This will be my last quote. He says, all inadequate doctrines of the atonement, which are what Christ did on the cross in bearing wrath for our sin, all inadequate doctrines of that are due to inadequate doctrines of God and man. If we bring God down to our level 
and raise ourselves to his, then of course we see no need for a radical salvation, let alone for a radical atonement to secure it. When on the other hand, we have glimpsed the blinding glory of the holiness of God and have been so convicted of our sin by the Holy Spirit that we tremble before God and acknowledge what we are, namely hell-deserving sinful people, then and only then does the necessity of the cross appear so obvious that we are astonished we never saw it before. See, John the Baptist saw his need for Jesus. You see him preaching on behalf of Christ, preparing the way for Christ in Matthew chapter 3. But you also, when Jesus comes to be baptized by him, and we'll look at this more later, when Jesus comes to be baptized by John, John the Baptist says in verse 14, I need to be baptized by you. And you come to me? See, he's recognizing his need for Christ for the same reasons that he's preaching. Namely, deliverance from God's wrath. Because that's why Jesus came. He came to save us from our sins. That is the penalty, that, in part, the penalty that our sins deserve, which is the wrath of God. So my question is, do you sense your need for Jesus in that way? Is the fundamental reason you need Jesus is because you need deliverance from the wrath of God for your sin? That's what I'm asking. That's a Christian, according to Matthew chapter 3. That's a Christian. It's not just because you've made some bad decisions and you feel bad about them and you hope Jesus will fix it. It's not just because this happened to me and then I just felt so guilty and I just want God to forgive me so I'll stop feeling guilty. But do you really sense deep down in your soul that between, if it were just you and God, that you're in big, big trouble. That you're in big trouble. Because you know what his standard of holiness is, which is perfection. And you saw that when you read the first couple pages of the Bible, that Genesis chapter one, that all it took was one sin and Adam's out of the garden. And you realize that I've done a lot more than that and you begin to sense the weight of your sinfulness and your deserving of the judgment of God and your need for a savior. See, that's where it starts. That's where getting right with God starts. You have to feel like you're not right and you have to feel like you're not right for the right reasons. Namely, God, I, have, I have sinned. God is righteously committed to punish all sin. He's righteously committed to punish me. That's the simple, basic Christian gospel. But I pray that you understand that and that if you sense your need for Jesus, it's for that reason. Primarily, fundamentally. Second point. Not only do, does the starting point of getting right with God start with sensing our need, but as we sense our need, we find him suitable to that need. We find Christ the answer. See, this is, let's just take this very basically, okay? If you're hungry, if you sense the need of hunger, like some of you are sensing right now, okay? So if you sense the need for hunger, you start to think food, all right? You don't think, you know, um, chairs, because chairs aren't helpful. You can sit in that chair all day long and your hunger is not going to go away. It's not suitable to your need. What is suitable to your need is food because food fixes hunger. All right? So that's what we're seeing here is that they sense their need for Jesus and then they find him suitable to meet that need. They're hearing what John the Baptist is preaching. They're sensing their need to be delivered from the wrath, of, wrath to come and they're hearing him preach about this one who's coming. To, and he's preaching, make straight the way of the Lord. And so they hear, the Lord's coming? The king is coming? I want to be a part of his kingdom. I want to be right with him. Now, I want to talk about two, two things in this passage in Matthew chapter 3 that describe the suitability of Jesus for our need. Why he's the perfect answer. Why he's the only savior who can be 
Why he's the only one who can deliver us from the wrath of God, like all those other texts we read at the beginning of my first point, John 3, 36, and 1 Thessalonians, those other passages talk about Jesus delivering us. Why is he the one who's suitable? First of all, we have two testimonies here. We have the testimony of John the baptizer, or Baptist, okay? We have the testimony of God the Father and God the Spirit. And those testimonies should matter to us because they're describing for us why Jesus is suitable to deliver us from the wrath of God that we sense our need for. All right, so let's look at what John, John says. Chapter one, or chapter three, verse one. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he, now Matthew's gonna quote the Old Testament. For this is he who was spoken of by Isaiah, by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. All right, so he, he says, Isaiah 40, verse three, talks about someone who's gonna come and prepare the way for the king. He's here. This is him. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. This is the fulfillment of what God said in the Old Testament. It's now coming true right now. Isaiah chapter 40, verse three, is being fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist. Verse four, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. You might stop and be like, what in the world? Matthew, why do you add that detail? What he's dressed like and what he's eating. But see, what Matthew's doing is trying to show that John the Baptist was the promised forerunner for the Messiah, and that he matches the description of Elijah. See, we have to figure out where the Old Testament ends. All right, you're in Matthew. Turn back three pages or four pages to the book of Malachi, right where the Old Testament ends. And look at Malachi chapter four, verses five and six. The last two verses that God speaks to us in the Old Testament. What does he say? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's the coming of Jesus Christ. He's like, you're gonna get an Elijah. He's gonna come on the scene. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. He's gonna convert people. Okay, so that's where the Old Testament ends. And then we pick up in Matthew chapter three as Jesus comes on the scene, the great and awesome day of the Lord is drawing near that Malachi talked about in Malachi chapter four. And then John shows up and he's dressed, according to verse four, like Elijah. Now, if you look at 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, it says that Elijah wore what John the Baptist was wearing when he was doing his public prophecy and ate the food that John the Baptist was eating. So that's why they include all that stuff about, you know, what garments he wore and what he was eating. Because what Matthew's trying to do is show us that this is the Elijah of Malachi 4. This is him, John the Baptist. He's here. He is fulfilling the prophecy. Now, John wasn't readily aware of this. If you read John chapter 1, verse 21, he doesn't speak of himself as certainty as, with certainty as Elijah. He's doing, but he is very conscious of what God has spoken to him and what he's called him to do. But there's still some, there's still some lack of clarity even around what John, John himself, what John sees himself as doing. But Luke chapter 1, verse 17 says this, talking about John the Baptist. He will go before him, that is Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the, for the Lord a people prepared. See that? So John the Baptist is gonna go forward in the spirit and power of Elijah. So it's not a physical Elijah, it's a personification of Elijah as expressed in Elijah's role and what Elijah was doing. Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13, again. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Jesus answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. Verse 13, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Crystal clear in the New Testament. Jesus saw John the Baptist as the fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy in Malachi 4. And so if Jesus saw it that way, we need to believe him, right? He's a reputable source for that. And so Matthew quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3 applies it to John. 
So John's role is to come and herald the coming of the kingdom. Just like in the, you know, you've seen those old, old movies where a king's coming to town and he's coming up into town. What, he sends a big entourage ahead of him, right? And he's, he's announcing the coming kingdom and he's heralding that the king is coming near and they're blowing trumpets and they're, they're just throwing a huge party. I think of Aladdin, Right? So those of you who have little kids, you know Disney, Aladdin, right? When Prince Ali is coming to town, they sing a whole song around it. I won't do that for you, although I did in seventh grade. So they sing this big song, and there's this big pomp and circumstance that's going on all around. That's not the way it's happening here, because this king is not an earthly king. This king is a heavenly king, and he's come to bear wrath and identify with sinners. And so the way he approaches is going to be consistent with that. So not only do we have the testimony of John the Baptist, we should say, I believe the Bible. I'm looking for fulfillment in Scripture. The Bible cares that you care about that. The Bible wants you to read its text and say, okay, how does this fit with this? And what Matthew is trying to do, primarily for a Jewish audience, is painstakingly show that they should have absolute confidence in John's ministry and what he's doing. Because he's not only fulfilling the prophecy concerning Elijah and Malachi 4, but he's also fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 40, verse 3. He is the forerunner for the king. So we should rest in knowing this is true, this is right, this is good. Then Jesus is going to be suitable. But I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, we have an even greater testimony in this passage. One that should matter far more than even John's testimony or Matthew's testimony. That is the testimony that he records of what God the Father says. And we see that beginning in the passage that Jim read in verse 13. So we see Jesus coming, he gets baptized, and then what happens in verse 16? And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, that's his anointing for ministry, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is God the Father, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So lest there be any question of who Jesus is and whether he is suitable to be the savior for our sins, from our sins and from the wrath they deserve, we get the spirit coming and blessing and God the Father announcing who his son really is and revealing before everyone there that this is his son, and he is well pleased with him, and we need to hear what he's going to say. So that we should find him, we should find Jesus. The point of all that is that we should find Jesus to be the suitable answer to our need. He is the food for our hunger. He's not a chair who can't do anything about it. No, we have the Father's testimony, we have the Spirit's testimony, the other two persons of the eternal Trinity speaking about this. And then we have John the Baptist's testimony in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So we should have absolute confidence that this is the one who really can deliver us from the wrath to come. Third point, last one. So when you, when you sense your need, you say, I'm a sinner. I deserve the wrath of God for my sin. Jesus is my only hope. What do you do? What do you do? From that point, well, you make the move. You make the move. You do what the passage tells you to do. And we're going to talk about seven things, all right? Seven components of conversion to, to Jesus, to God, of getting right with God through Jesus. So here it is. Here's the problem, the wrath of God. Here's the solution, Jesus Christ. So how does Jesus deliver me from the wrath of God? And John tells us right here. First one, preaching. You have to hear a message. God has chosen to save the world through a message. And it's the message I've been telling you this morning and I'm gonna tell you. It's not just preaching behind this. It's preaching at lunches. 
It's across the street with your neighbor. It's on the telephone. It's through text. It's an email. It's a letter. It's a way we have to take a message. We have to take words and put them together in sentences and tell people what God has done. God's not going to write it in the sky. He's going to tell it through us. And so preaching first, we hear the message. What do we do with that message? Two things. We repent and we believe. Repentance is a clear theme of this chapter, is it not? I mean, that's what the people are doing, right? Verse 2, John the Baptist is preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so people are coming. In verse 6, they're getting baptized and they're, what does it say in verse 6? Confessing their sins. They're repenting. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees show up and he doesn't think they're repentant. He knows why they're coming, but it's not for the reason that these other people are coming. And he says to him in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So repentance is a big theme that's flowing through this chapter. What is repentance? Repentance is changing direction. It's changing direction. It's a whole-souled change of life. Going one way, I'm turning and going another way. It involves confession of sin, that is admitting our guilt. It involves contrition, that is sorrow for what we've done. And it involves conversion, turning from it. So it's not only confession, but it's contrition and conversion. It's not only the admission of guilt, but sorrow for it and a turning from it. See, if all those components aren't there, it's not real repentance. It has to not just be, oh yeah, I'm guilty. It has to be a sorrow for that, a brokenheartedness for that. And it can be at various levels. There's no like percentage here. It's a brokenness over our guilt. And then it's a commitment to turn from it. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to walk that way. And what's really astonishing here is that the people who are coming from Jerusalem and Judea to be baptized by John are Jewish people. See, you have to understand that the only people who were baptized before this time were Gentile converts to Judaism. Jews don't get baptized. They're the covenant people of God. But John's message is clear, isn't it? And the way that people are responding is clear. Everyone's unclean. Everyone's unclean. Just because you're an ethnic Jew, we'll get into this more in a minute, doesn't mean that you're okay. Just because you're part of Israel under the old covenant in the old Testament doesn't mean you're okay. Just because you have a family heritage doesn't mean you're okay. So his message is clear. Everyone's unclean, whether you're moral or immoral, whether you're religious or irreligious. John is calling the Jews to admit that they are sinners and need to get right with God. And to admit that being Jews was not sufficient to save them from the wrath of God. So he's calling them to repent, and he calls us to repent. So we hear the message, we repent. We admit our sin, we feel sorry for it, we turn from it. Third, believe. Now there's not evidence here in Matthew chapter 3 of faith. It doesn't say the word faith or say the word belief, but that doesn't mean it's not here. Acts chapter 19 verse 4, key verse here, talking about John the Baptist and what's going on here. Paul's describing it. Paul says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So John's not just walking around saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the, like, like a bird just chirping. That's a summary of his message. But what we see in Acts chapter 19 verse 4 is that included in that call to repentance is a call to believe in the one who is to come, that is Jesus. So we hear God's message about our sin and, our, and the judgment that's to come. We sense our need for it. We look and we say, Jesus, he's my hope. He's the one who can rescue me. And we repent and we believe. What do we receive as a result of that? 
by grace. What do we receive? We receive two things, and it's right here in the text. We receive repent, forgiveness and righteousness. Mark chapter 1, verse 4, in, the, in, a, in an opposite gospel account, summarizing what we see in Matthew chapter 3 here, Mark chapter 1, verse 4 says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So what's clear here is that as people are confessing their sins, they're receiving forgiveness for those sins. They are receiving complete and absolute total acquittal before the judgment seat of God for all the sins that they have rightly committed and are righteously deserve to be judged for. God is burying their sin in that water as they come up out of it. Righteousness is also being given. Notice verse 15, John chapter, or Matthew chapter three. But Jesus answered John when John was objecting about baptizing him and he says, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. See, Jesus is on a mission to fulfill righteousness. Why is he on a mission to fulfill righteousness? Because the first Adam didn't and Israel didn't. And now as the new Israel and the new Adam, he's coming to do everything that God requires of man. And so he comes and he fulfills it all. And he says, I'm going to identify with them. I'm identifying with them. Baptize me. Because I've come to do for them what they can't do for themselves. I've come to right the wrongs. I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to earn the righteousness that I will gift to them by faith. And you know what happens, brothers and sisters, and this is such good news, and I want you to hear this as though you've never heard it before. Just let it wash over you. Christians in this room, brothers and sisters of mine, listen to this. When you repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and place your faith exclusively in Jesus Christ, God the Father says of you what God the Father said of Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's what we get. We get the affirmation of God for Jesus' sake. In Christ, we receive complete and absolute forgiveness, but we also get free and full the righteousness of Jesus. God's law condemns us, but his gospel has redeemed us. Where we fell short, God went long. And he fulfilled what he demanded of us, himself. In the person of his son, he did what we could not do. While we were still sinners and rebels, idolaters and fools, he gave Jesus to us and for us. He lived a life of perfect obedience for us, fulfilling every demand of the law. And he died a death of utter humility, exhausting all the judgment of God against our sins. We are saved then by the merit of Christ. And the only work that's left for us to do, to do is according to John 6, 29, believe in the one he has sent. Now our hearts can sing. Now our hearts can sing, arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears and shame-fueled tears. Jesus is your righteousness. Jesus is your perfect, once and for all, God-pleasing, law-fulfilling, judgment-exhausting righteousness. No fear in death. No guilt in life. No separation from the love of God. God loves you as much as he loves Jesus, and there's nothing you can do about it but believe and rest in it. That is the good news of the gospel that gets pronounced over us. When we were, so if you want to this morning, go ahead and cling to your sin. But if you want this, if you want the affirmation of God that has zero to do with you and your performance and will remain that way, his favor, his blessing, his love will rest upon you, then I offer it to you this morning. Are you here this morning? And you hear my voice, and you hear that I have a need for Jesus. Jesus is the only way. If I repent and believe, I get that? Yes, you get that. And it's not because you repent and believe. It's not like you're meriting it. 
Oh, if I just repent enough and I just believe enough. No, 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 no. It's empty. We come empty. We walk to the banker and we say, I'm bankrupt. And the banker says, well, I got good news for you. I have another account over here. It belong, it, it, the signature on the line is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And I will gladly take everything that's in his bank account and transfer it to yours. Have a good day. Have a good day. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. You have a new bank account. You no longer have to pay for your debts because Jesus paid for them. So how does that get expressed then? So we repent, we believe, and then we express that in baptism. That's why we baptize people. It's not because we're a Baptist church. It's because Matthew 3 says so. All right? So Matthew 3, Jesus, or so people who come to Jesus, come to John at first, get baptized as a sign of declaring that they are now a disciple of his. They are now being brought into the kingdom. And so as a result, they express that through baptism. Have you? We baptize people on the first Sunday of every month. If you're here and you're a Christian and you're, you're, you're desirous of being a part of us as a local church community and you've never expressed yourself in baptism, talk to me. Talk to one of our pastors. A couple of them will be at back. You can talk to Pastor Ted, who was up here. You can talk to Pastor Jonathan. You can talk to me, Pastor Mark. You can talk to either one of us. We'd love to talk to you and hear your story. And if this has happened to you, we'd love to baptize you. We'd love to do it. And we would, we will, we'll celebrate with you as a, as a church together. So please speak to us about that. We want you to take that step of obedience. The Lord Jesus commands you to do that. That's the way we publicly identify with him. That's the way we show the world and tell the world that we're his. We don't just hide in our little repentance and belief corner. We go out and we express that we are repenting and believing people. And we want to share that with the world, that I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. I belong to Jesus Christ. Next, we bear fruit. And I'm almost done. We bear fruit. So we hear the, hear the word, we hear the gospel, we hear the preaching, we repent, we believe, we are baptized, and then we live a life of fruit bearing. Look at verses 8 and 10 again. John's warning these people, these Pharisees and Sadducees who are coming to him, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, he says. That is, you say that you want to come to me and you want to believe in me, but I don't think you want to have your life changed. I don't think you plan to walk in a new way. See, baptism is meant to be a sign that we're walking in a new direction, that we're not going to follow our old way and our old path. We're going to follow Jesus' way and Jesus' path. We're going to be a disciple of his. So we, when we're baptized, that's a big moment. That's a significant moment. That's a moment that's saying, I am not my own. I don't belong to me anymore. My life belongs to Jesus, and I'm going to walk with him and follow him and obey him by his grace, and I'm going to mess up, and I'm going to stumble, and I'm going to sin, but I'm going to hold on to him as my Savior. And there's going to never be, by his grace, a moment where I am not resolved to walk with him by his grace and his enabling power. Because we can't do it on our own. We need you to save us every day. And he's committed to doing that. But we are in our heart of hearts that come hell or high water, we will follow him. Even if it costs us our head, we will follow him. And then what do we have as a result of that? A great future in heaven, a certainty in heaven. Look at verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor. This is talking about when Jesus comes a second time and judges the world. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. I love that image. That's where we're headed. That's his true people. We're headed into the house of God. We're gonna live as his family in his house forever. Now, this is urgent. This is urgent. This is what I'm gonna close. So worship team, you can, you can come on up. I'm gonna close with a couple of questions. This is urgent. Please hear this as urgent, especially if you're here and you've maybe not heard the gospel or it's been fuzzy your whole life and you're not sure what this whole Christian faith thing is all about. I've tried God giving me help the best I can to put the cookies on the bottom shelf this morning and just lay it out there for you. And I pray that you see, you see your need. And, and here's the deal. 
don't wait on that. Don't wait on that. I mean, if there's anything we get from this passage is that this is urgent. This is urgent. It's not something you can sit on. You see what John says in verse 10? Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. You say, God's moving in my heart right now. I, I sense that I, the Lord, the Lord want, I, I need to come to Jesus. I need, I'm telling you, you might not get that sense anymore. Now is the time to respond to that. Now is the day of salvation. Don't play games with God. God is offering you his son this morning. Don't spit on him. Don't you dare spit on the son of God. He's offering eternal life to you, eternal hope, joy, peace, forgiveness, righteousness. Come to him. You drop it all in your seat right now. You pray during this song. You receive Christ. You repent of sin. And then you tell somebody about it. You tell a church member. You tell a pastor. You tell a friend. But don't play games with this. Look, by nature, we deceive ourselves. It's in the text. We see it even in verse 9. Do not presume to say to yourselves, these Pharisees and Sadducees are saying, do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. See, we're always seeking a justification for why we don't need Jesus. Saying, I got a good family. I'm a good person. Don't presume to say to yourself that you have any other hope other than the hope of Jesus Christ. Don't be like these Pharisees and Sadducees who look to things other than Jesus to save them, namely their pedigree, their wealth, their, their position in the aristocracy, their religious knowledge, the fact that they were better than everybody else because they knew more about the Bible than them. None of that. Tax collectors and sinners go into the kingdom before people like this. The wealthy have no need. The, the, the healthy have no need. The sick have a need. The sick have a need. Are you sick this morning? Are you sick of your sin? Cry out to Jesus. He will receive you and embrace you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time together to spend in your word, to hear your gospel again. Pray for those of us in this room right now who, have, who are indifferent toward this. They don't have a sense of urgency. We pray that you would call them out of their complacency and move them into of a felt sense of their desperation before you. We pray for those who are Christians this morning, who have repented and believed and are currently repenting and believing and have expressed that in baptism and are walking a life of fruit bearing. We pray that they would be encouraged, that they would be built up, that their Savior is real, and that he has fully and completely paid for all of their sins. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your offer to us and for fulfilling everything that we could not do in and of ourselves, for dying the death we deserve to die and living the life we could never live. Thank you in your name. Amen.